Hey, I'm Dawn Tree. Welcome to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone who's autistic. I believe that it is high time that we as parents and loved ones started focusing on ourselves and how we can change as we strive to support the people that we love. I am so glad you're here with me. Together, we're taking the steps necessary to change the way the world looks at autism. Please don't forget to take a second to rate and review Atypical Parenting wherever you're listening. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. We have a special guest again today. Dr. Susan Landers is a retired neonatologist, which for those of you not in the medical field means she spent her career over 30 years caring for infants in the neonatal intensive care unit. So the tiny little babies that come into this world usually a little too early. So that was her career. And then she retired and wrote a memoir titled So Many Babies, which pretty much sums it up, I guess. She also spends a lot of her time advocating for parents, and she has a special interest in caregiver burnout. So that is what we're going to talk about today. Thanks for hanging out, Dr. Landers. Oh, thank you, Dawn. It's a pleasure, and you can call me Susan. Excellent. So Susan, tell me a little bit about yourself that's not in your little bio that I just read. Well, I've been retired for six years now, and because I was bored with not enough to do, besides writing and publishing my book, So Many Babies, I decided to advocate for working mothers, for caregivers. I decided to help parents who experience having a child in the NICU. I've given a number of presentations to NICU social workers and child life specialists and nurses and nurse practitioners, because that experience is one of the most intense and challenging that parents endure. I do a lot of speaking about working mother burnout because it's so prevalent right now. And I write about it too, Because I believe that working mothers are still looking for answers on the internet, they are reading blogs, they're looking at social media, they're trying to find out the best ways to take care of their family, their children, and in that process, they're doing what I did when I was younger, which is getting so much information, you sometimes get confused and forgetting to go to a best source or forgetting to talk with their very best friend about the situation. So I really like to remind working mothers and caregivers to think about ways to take care of themselves. That was something that took me a long, long time to learn. I had three kids while I was practicing medicine full time. And it took about 10 years. All three kids were born before I really figured out that I could not do everything I wanted to do unless I took care of me because nobody else was looking after me. And so I like to talk about that and remind caregivers, especially working mothers, that what we're doing is really hard. We don't have the cultural context yet. Women in the workforce is a pretty new phenomenon, and 
women being mothers is an old phenomenon. And so we all carry around this cultural notion of what you have to do to be a good mother or the perfect mother. And it really doesn't jive with working full time. It's really almost impossible to do both. And so I like to give time to that whole issue of when we try to be everything to everyone, when we try to be in two places at once, that process sets us up for caregiver burnout. What do you think it is about women and mothers that make us think that we can do it all? Well, we've seen our mothers try to do that. Society tells us that we're the caring, feeling, nurturing gender, and we're supposed to do that. There is something innate in women that's very different from men that tells us I'm supposed to be looking out for my little ones. And even though we've evolved as a species in a system where caregiving was more of a village or community sort of construct, now we've siloed ourselves into our own homes. We may or may not have social networks. We may or may not have family nearby. We may or may not have a husband or a partner that helps us. And so we're trying to do something all by ourselves that we've never done before as humans. And I'm talking about millennia. It's, it really is a biological anomaly that women are trying to take care of children and their families alone. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it's such an excellent point, and I hadn't really thought about it that way. But you're right. I mean, women used to do all of the motherly things, but they had mm-hmm. a community to do it with. So right. it is right. very different today. And I'd say more women than not don't have that sort of extended community support like women in the past. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Motherly Magazine does a survey every couple of years about working mothers and mothers in general. And they have found that a minority of women have multi-generational households Mm. and a minority of women have family and relatives nearby. So we've totally broken the old mold. We're not staying where we grew up. We're not locating near those social support networks. We're out on our own for whatever reason. And then when we have children, we're really alone. Yeah. And it really comes back to bite us when we try to do everything on our own, which is really impossible. And and I don't think it was biologically ever meant to be that way. And so our culture is right now struggling with this notion of how do women function as good mothers and also work full-time. How do they do that? (laughs) With great difficulty. I like to tell working moms that what they're doing is difficult. And I have never been surprised over the years at how many different women say, are you kidding? Really? You're telling me that? I mean, I thought, I thought it was supposed to be Easy. I'm going to, what is easy about having two or three jobs all at once? There's nothing at all easy about that. 
when I come into the hospital to see your child and to talk to you, I'm still thinking in the back of my mind about my sick kid at home or my son at school who's been acting up, who's being bullied, or my daughter who's really worried about her clique in the sixth grade. And, and she said, you think about all that? I said, we all do. We all carry all this baggage about our children, about our families with us when we go in to work and vice versa. Women are now working at professional jobs, sometimes stressful jobs, and we carry that stress home with us when we go home to take care of our children. I cannot count the number of times that I was, oh, maybe bummed about a patient or stressed about a difficult family or an outcome that wasn't going properly. And when I got home from work at the end of the day, one of my children would say, mom, are you okay? I go, what do you mean? Are you, you're worrying again. I said, you're right. I'm worrying. And so they could pick up on when I was thinking about a difficult case or a problematic family. And I think we all do that. I think we have so much emotional baggage that we carry around with us, whether it's about our children, our spouse, our family, or whether it's about our work. And it's really difficult to click that on and off to categorize those two compartments of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Especially where, you know, a lot of these things, like as a physician, as a nurse, where I spent most of my career, you know, these are life and death things we're bringing home with us too. You know, it's not right. It's not uh, right. It's not simple. So you advocate that women take care of themselves. How do you suggest we do that? Well, everybody talks about self-care and that notion is good because it reminds us that we should enjoy exercise if possible, get outside in nature and take walks if possible. And if we live in a place that's conducive to that, eat healthy food if possible limit our junk food intake when we're at work or stressed at work, limit our alcohol intake. It took me a long time to figure out that my glass of wine at the end of the day was not really helping me. It was yeah. making my stress go away, but it didn't make me feel better. So this notion of... That is a sad but true revelation. Sad but true revelation. Yeah. So this notion of self-care that talks about the different methods that we can use to take care of ourselves is fine and helpful, but so is setting boundaries. So is knowing that you have to say no to some things in order to say yes to yourself. That you have to say, oh, it took me forever, Dawn, to learn to say no at work. I just, I don't know where I got this notion that I was supposed to say yes to everything. My husband still says, you're not saying no again. <laughs> He'll remind me if I kind of backslide into doing things when people ask me to. But because we are caring and nurturing and because we do want to serve others, most of us do. It's really easy to put yourself at the end of your list. 
I loved an exercise my husband and I both did when we were married, maybe about 10 years. It was make a list of everything in your life that's important to you. And he had, you know, the kids and me and his job up there. And then he had some of his hobbies. He had himself. And I had like 25 things on my list. Family, friends, sister, siblings. Of course, children were up at the top. And I had myself way, way, way down at the bottom of the list. And, and a psychotherapist at the time said, look at your list and compare the two lists. What is wrong with your list? It took me forever to figure out that I needed to put myself at the top of the list, that I needed to take care of me in a way that replenished my energy, that filled up my cup. That analogy has always helped me more than any other I was a healer as a physician, and I served others, and I thought of myself as a cup full of caring and energy and help, and some days I poured out so much of myself that I was empty, literally empty, which is really what caregiver burnout is. And I had to learn to recharge my energy, recharge my batteries, fill up my cup by doing things that were important to me, whether it was taking a run, running for two miles outside, taking the kids to the park and playing, having a yoga class with a friend every Saturday, writing in a journal, just doing things that I thought were helpful for me. When I learned to do that, I was able to be a better doctor and a better mother and spouse. So to me, that's what self-care is. It's recognizing for yourself what works for you to make you feel better. What would you say to women who say, well, that's just dandy? But I'm not selfish like that. I I have other people who rely on me. That just doesn't feel right to me. What would you say to them? Well, when you take care of yourself, it's not selfish. That's the first major rule to understand, to grasp. Self-care is more about setting boundaries so that you will be able to take care of others than it is saying, me before others. Because what I did for a living was constantly taking care of others. I was always taking care of others. I was always putting myself and my family on the back burner and choosing my patients and their parents first. And when I said, we can talk tomorrow afternoon at 4.30, right now I'm going to leave to go home because it's my night to have supper with the kids And I will be here tomorrow afternoon at 4.30 and I will sit down with you and I will answer every one of your questions. So in my learning to set that boundary, to tell that parent no, instead of staying an extra hour over for an unplanned conference, I was willing to give them the hour they wanted the next day and then use my time to get off early at five o'clock when 
odd day to go home and have dinner with my family. When I learned to make those choices, self-care is really about choices. When I learned to say, I can't do that. That's my yoga class day. I've, I've got to go do my yoga class with my friend. I found that not only did I have more energy, but I had a greater sense of control over my whole life. Taking care of myself as a working mom allowed me to be okay for everyone that I loved. Yeah, I think people forget about the alternative. When you're spinning so fast and you're doing all of the things and you know, putting all of your own needs aside, it's easy to say, oh, well, it's, it's okay, I, I'm managing. But there will come a time when you cannot manage anymore and you certainly can't manage in a healthy, right. productive you know, way that's going to help your children thrive. No, no. I, when I was in my mid-40s, we changed jobs, went to a new city. My husband and I both had new jobs, but he was the primary reason we moved and had three little kids and trying to establish myself academically at a new medical school, I, I became depressed. I was clinically depressed. And a friend recommended a psychiatrist whom I went to work with. And he said, tell me what's going on in your life. And I said, I am the guy on the Ed Sullivan show who spins sticks and balances plates on the top of the sticks. I spin plates and I start them and I have plates spinning all over the stage. And I run around and I spin plates and spin sticks so that nothing will fall and break. And I'm really good at it. I can keep 30 or 40 plates spinning in the air and nothing falls. And that's my life, I said. He said, why don't you figure out how to take down some of the plates? And it was one of those aha moments when I, when I went, oh, my God, it's, is it really that simple? And he said, sometimes it's really that simple. Which plates do you absolutely have to spin and keep in the air? Those are the ones that are most important to you. Some of the other plates, you can take them down. And so over about a year, working with him and on some medication for depression, I literally set a priority list of all my plates, and I decided which ones to let go of and to stop spinning, and my life got better. Yeah. So that notion of running around and spinning plates, I think a lot of us do that. I think we lose touch with just how much we have going on. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think about work-life balance? How would you suggest that people approach that? Because it's easy to get sucked into a few more hours here or there or staying late. Right. Yeah. And those things are important for your career, but at the same time, it stress it adds more stress to your parenting role. What do you think about that? Yeah, it, I don't think work-life balance is an accurate description. I think it's more of work-life juggle. Mm. To me, it's always been 
you're dealing with things at work and the other things are on the back burner, whether it's a nanny or a caregiver or kids in school or spouse or, or whatever is providing your role when you're not there. And then you switch what you're juggling and you go do that and someone else is in the hospital watching your patients. And so to me, it was always, I cannot be two places at once. How do I juggle what I'm doing and make sure the most important needs are being met? Now that can be difficult, as you know, if you're in a healing profession, caregiving profession, because you think you're needed all the time, when in fact you're not. <laughs> you think you are, but you've got to have rest because you can't do it 24-7. It is true. impossible. That's true. I remember as a new nurse thinking whenever they asked me to stay because they didn't have coverage, thinking, oh, they need me. What? I have to, right? Right. They need me. And somebody said that to me, like, this place was here long before you came, and it will be here long after you leave. It right. will not fall down when you leave. And that's right. what I had to consciously remind myself, because it's easy to get sucked into that. Yes, it is. It really is. So that work-life balance that's really, in my mind, more of juggling is again, setting priorities. Where do you want to spend your time? If you want to work 60 hours a week at work, you're going to spend less time at home with your kids and with your spouse or partner. And maybe some 40 hour weeks, you'll think, wow, this is great. I have time to go to the gym a couple of days this week and go have lunch at school with the kids, with one or two kids. So it's a process that's constantly changing in my mind. I don't think anybody has a set pattern of mm. how they juggle, how they balance. When I was younger, I loved to go for runs. And that helped me so much to free my mind and to think through stressors and to make priority lists. And when I got older, it was exercise class with a friend, or it was journaling, or it was having coffee with somebody that I cared about. And even at work, a colleague at work and sitting and talking for 30 minutes about how they were handling things with their children. And so, and then at the very end of my career, it was back to more self-care because the weight of healthcare, the weight of taking care of patients, and some of the ethical issues associated with taking care of small babies began to be heavy for me. And so that burden forced me to, again, look at my life, look at my priorities, figure out how to do the things that made me feel better, therapy, journaling, reading, walking out in nature. I couldn't run anymore, but I could certainly get out and walk three or four miles several days a week. And that process helped me conquer my burnout. So the reason I'm telling you this is that 
when you're young, when you're middle-aged, and when you're older, the ways that you take care of yourself, if you're a caregiver or a mother or a nurse or a doctor, will vary based on what you like, what makes you feel good, the age of your children, the issues your children have. There was one time when I was, I guess I was in my 50s, when my middle daughter developed an eating disorder. To make a long story short, we noticed that she wasn't eating very well. She was a nervous eighth grader and kind of pushed food around on her plate. And she had come home from camp saying, I'm fat. And I went, no, you're not fat. Come on. You're the usual 105 pounds swimmer, athletic child. Well, she she stopped eating. She just went on a quote diet and stopped eating. And two or three months later, I was begging the pediatrician to help me and to do something about it. And she said, I think this is reflux. I don't think this is an eating disorder. And I went, oh my God, this is, there's something wrong with my child. I've just got to figure this out. I cut back my work hours to 50%. I went to my boss. I said, something's wrong with my child. I have got to get her a diagnosis and help. And I can't work this much. And you've just got to give me a couple of months at 50%. And he said, okay. I guess he thought I was valuable enough that he could tolerate being without me for half time. And so in those two months turned into three, I got her a nutritionist. I got her a therapist. I enlisted the help of her best friend's mother. We went into family counseling. We did everything we needed to address her eating disorder. And as a result of those efforts, she turned around in about six months. The 10 pounds that she had lost, she regained. And she was swimming and happy. And so I think the moral of that story is there will be times when you have to say to work, that's it. I can't take it. My family is more important. Somebody's sick. Somebody's been injured. I have got to put my effort somewhere else. And that's okay, too. Even doctors and nurses have to do that. We have to say, I can't handle all this. It's too much. My daughter needs me right now. But I think that's one of my best examples. And I never thought I would do that, that I told my boss what I needed. And he said, okay, I understand. And so again, the moral of that story is share what you're going through with your manager or your supervisor. They will probably understand and want you to be healthy and happy and to be able to take care of your family. Yeah. When you need something from the people that you work with or whatever, you don't know if you're going to get it until you ask, right? Like right. the secret right. really is in just putting it out there. Exactly. So earlier we talked about the way our society is and how as families in general, we're pretty siloed and separated from community. What resources would you recommend to people who are feeling alone or like they need some support? One of the good things about the internet is family support groups, whether it's for autism, whether it's for epilepsy, whether it is for dyslexia. I had a younger child with dyslexia and I felt so, so alone because it was back in the early 90s and 
There was not much research yet, and I certainly couldn't find other parents who were dealing with it. So the internet now and social media now, especially Facebook, has support groups for parents of children with certain conditions. Those things help a lot. Those things connect us to other people who have been through it, who are going through it. Um, on another fun story, it's a sweet story. One of my best friends who's a NICU nurse, her second child was born and I attended the delivery at her request and the baby came out looking like he had Down syndrome. And she could tell that I had a little worried look on my face and she said, Sue, what's going on? And I went, well, Chris, hang on just a minute. And I examined the baby and he you know, had many, many physical findings of Down syndrome. We did the appropriate workup. We did the cardiac echo to make sure he did not have heart disease, which he did not, thankfully. And within a couple of days, we confirmed the diagnosis of Down syndrome. And she was really a trooper about it. She took three or four months off from maternity leave and went home to learn how to feed this child who was a lousy feeder as so many of them are. She devoted the rest of her life to supporting other parents with Down syndrome. Anytime in our hospital that a baby with Down syndrome was born, she would personally contact the family. She would introduce them to the Down Syndrome Association of Central Texas. She became a board member on their board. We did outreach together. We did family support groups together. She modeled for me the kind of parent who not only takes care of a disabled child, but also provides support to other parents. And so that's the best thing about the internet today, that we can find people and groups of people who are dealing with the same issues we're dealing with, whether they're local or not. We can take advantage of their knowledge, their experience. They've been through it and they can help get us through it. That's a great suggestion. I'm not a huge Facebook fan, but I think that's one thing that it's really good for. Right. Occasionally. Yeah. Those support groups, better in person, but also possible in groups or Zoom settings, but that what I saw the Down Syndrome Association of Central Texas do was phenomenal. And, and the parents would get together several times a year. And over the years, we saw all these kids grow up and many of them move into apartments and some go off to college. And uh, the parents supported each other the whole way. Yeah, that's great. It was amazing. It's true. Nobody, nobody knows what you're going through except another parent who has a child with the same issues. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of like judgment out there for parents of autistic kids in particular. So. That's really too bad because as the rate of autism is going up for reasons we don't understand, it is a very challenging condition mm -hmm. to manage in your child. It takes a while for you to figure out or have questions about your child's development. 
it takes a little while. So that, that doesn't even occur until about 12 to 18 months. And it takes a little while for you to convince your pediatrician that your concerns are legitimate. And maybe you talk to other parents and a teacher and y'all put your heads together. And sometimes the pediatricians are, no, 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 let's wait and see. And so the process drags on and drags on. And when you finally get a diagnosis, when you finally feel like you know what you're dealing with, you sort of feel behind. Mm. Like, I guess parents who have children with disabilities always feel a little behind, especially because they're looking for problems, but also because they expect to find the problems. They've been forewarned, look out for this, look out for that. And so it kind of shadows the way we see our children. I mean, we want to see them happy and thriving, yeah. but we're suspicious. And so the process is lengthy. The process is stressful. And then you have to deal with the school system and childcare and there's all the legal issues and there's the childcare issues. And if you don't know how to work the educational system in your city or state, you're behind again. And so having a child with autism is scary it's not insurmountable by any means, but it's scary when you first confront it. Yeah. And then you're sort of muddle through it, in my mind, in the first three to five years as you figure out how to work the system. Yeah. It's not the easy. The healthcare system. No, it's not. And the healthcare system is not compliant. It's not helpful. No, the healthcare system, especially in the United States, is designed to not spend money. <laughs> Right. So if they can deny care or treatment or meds or whatever, they're happy to do that. Right. Right. So parents of autistic kids become the perfect advocates for their children. Yeah. They figure out the disease, the diagnosis. They figure out the law. They figure out what they're entitled to with respect to care and teaching. And they become adamant in getting their child the help they need. They are some of the most effective parents that I have worked with in my whole career. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that is a hard row to hoe, but at the same time, you know, it almost fits in with our self-care theme because so many times as parents who, especially you're raising your first child, maybe with autism or some other special need, if you are not able to trust yourself and you're taking all the opinions of all these other people. Mm-hmm. That is so stressful and it's constantly leaving you second guessing and stressed out and worrying. And so just being able to own that and, you know, really listen to your gut and hold on to what you know is right in the face of people trying to naysay you, that is a form of self-care as well, I think. It is. And it's difficult to do because... Very. Nobody else wants to be the main advocate for your child. And you have to do that and you want to do that. And it's almost like you're fighting a battle to get them Mm -hmm. the help that they need. Yeah, it feels like a battle. It does. It feels like a battle. It's stressful. And so, again, it's you're adding stress to your life 
It's stressful enough to be a parent, a working parent, and then you have a child with special needs, which adds extra stress. So then self-care is even more important because you may be at the end of your rope every yeah. now and then. Yeah. You may have to say, I've got to have three hours off this Friday. I've got to have some respite care. I just am fried. And so that acknowledgement that this is stressful, that giving yourself permission to say, I am not superhuman. I am a regular mom. I'm a regular person. I am doing a great job and I'm exhausted. That awareness, that acknowledgement is the first step in taking care of yourself. When you feel emotionally exhausted, when you are physically exhausted, when you want to get away from your child, oh my God, I can't tolerate one more thing. When you feel like you're not doing a good job, and we've all been there, but when all those things happen at once, that's caregiver burnout. And that's when you absolutely need to take better care of yourself, to get the help you need. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thanks. I appreciate your perspective. Your book, I, I kind of want to, I'm not uh, into the tiny little babies, but I kind of am really interested in picking up your book. So I'm going to look into that. Oh, great. Now, you know, we take care, half our patients are full-term babies that are sick. Really? With half. I would not have expected that. Infection yeah. or birth defects. Yeah, birth defects heart disease, brain problems, all kind of birth defects. And so I've told stories in my book about the whole spectrum of infants that get NICU care because they all challenge us as parents and as humans to figure out what to do, how to take care of them, how to help the family, I hope you will read my book. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm going to pick it up. It's uh, where can I get it? You can get it on Amazon, on Bookshop, any of the big sellers. So many babies. Excellent. If uh, people have a question for you, if they want to reach out to you, do you have any sort of um, yes. resources yes. for them? Yes, my website is susanlandersmd.com, and there's a contact button. You can write in your name, your email address, questions. I will respond. I love to get questions from parents, especially those who want to know about resources for special needs children. Check out the resources tab on my website. There are some things there that your listeners may find helpful as well. And they're all free. <laughs> Awesome. Amazing. I'm going to put that in the show notes, guys. So wherever you're listening, if you are interested, just check out the little box underneath the episode. At any rate, thanks again. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Dawn. I appreciate what you're doing. Take care. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. I hope you know that I appreciate you spending your time here because I know there's a lot of other places that you could be. Quick shout out to my editor extraordinaire and co-producer Sam Eisenbaum. 
If you found value in this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could just rate and review it on your podcast platform. Now get out there, keep learning and growing so that you can be the best version of yourself as you support the people you love. That's what this podcast is all about.